This is Delegate Brian Crosby from St. Mary's County, the Mother County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of information on what's happening in Annapolis. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, it's Thursday, April 28th. How's it going? Doing okay. We're back to a remote recording, but uh, I love this idea of clicking through a bunch of issues from the legislative session that's just a couple weeks behind us. So did round one last week and I want to talk about labor education stuff this week. I'm looking forward to it. Today we have with us special guest Brianna January, MAKO policy team member. And I think as Michael alluded to a little bit, her policy portfolio includes education, schools and capital facilities, employee benefits and relations, business affairs, and more. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to this talk today. Yeah, I am too. I definitely was not busy at all this session. <laughs> yeah, none of us were. None of us were. So today, to set you up, Brianna, we're going to get into paid leave, school construction, education, community colleges, a bunch of different topics here. And I want to start with one of the most intriguing bills of the session, and that's the passage of a program to establish a statewide paid family and medical leave program, FMLA. Brianna, there was a lot of back and forth here. Walk us through the process, the bill, what's in the bill, what's not in the bill, and take us through sort of how we got there. I know there was a veto that was overridden. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's start off strong here. So paid family and medical leave, or FMLA, as you indicated, Kevin, um, this has been a topic that's been on everyone's radar in the state for a few years now. Um, so nothing shy for us as a body, nothing shy for the legislature, that's for sure. Um, but this session was really unique. There was a ton of back and forth on the issue. Uh, we essentially opened the session knowing that both chambers wanted to do something on paid leave this year. Um, but we didn't know exactly if they were on the same page and they didn't seem to know either at first. Um, it, was, it was honestly a difficult issue to follow as it was bouncing back and forth as many things are during session, but this one being particular, particularly complicated at that. Um, and then of course we had the calculus of what leadership wanted to do during an election year and a high profile session. So a lot of back and forth. Um, both chambers really started the session pretty strong, introducing a bills that would fully establish a, a paid leave program. Um, however, by mid-session or so, we really started to see a divide in, in the plan and what strategy they were going to take. The House uh, about mid-session took a large step back, for example, and decided that, you know, the best move instead of passing a full bill to establish um, a program was actually to pass a commission to study the details of how to actually best implement a program in the state. And, you know, instead of leaving those details up to the legislature, they wanted an independent body, a commission to really hash that out. Some of that was due to the pandemic, right? I think there were some arguments that, hey, the economy is a lot different. We know that yeah. businesses are struggling. And some of this, you know, we need to take it to a study was partly at least due to the, the pandemic. That's what we heard, right? Absolutely. That wasn't out of nowhere. You know, that was that was based on feedback. It was based on real concerns um, from various communities and, and leaders. Um, and so that's where the House started to move. And there was actually what I thought was a pretty well done explanation on the floor of how this was the smart, timely um, way to go about this. 
Um, but then just maybe a week later, um, the Senate actually moved forward with their full bill to really flesh out a more established program and not just continue to study the issue. And within days of the Senate passing that version, the House actually came back and said, you know what, we're actually going to go ahead and, and do something more than just our commission. And they quickly passed the Senate's plan. So lots of bouncing back and forth, lots of moving targets. Um, but by the end of the session, we did have both chambers in agreement passing the same version of a bill to establish a program um, that leaves a lot of the details still to be determined, which I'll get into soon. Um, but as expected, that bill after being passed was vetoed by Governor Hogan, and then um, the, the legislature was still in session and, and overrode that veto. So we do have um, something on the books now to establish a program, and I'm happy to get into what those details look like if y'all are ready to. I think what's interesting here is you talk about creating a program that for for people who haven't followed this issue, the last couple of years have pointed in a particular direction for how Maryland might proceed with family leave. And it's a little different uh -huh. than the last time state leaders sort of asked the business or employer community to do things differently. I mean, a number of years ago, the state sort of accelerated its own state minimum wage. And, and that was basically, this is what private employers need to do. You need to pay this wage, period. And this is an obligation directly on the employer. This idea of family leave, Brianna, is, is really, it's a little bit more like the way we do unemployment insurance, that yes. rather than the individual employer or business is responsible for paying your personal benefits as an employee, if you need to go out on leave you for yourself or for a family member, instead, everybody pays into sort of a big trust fund or a big central program, and the benefits come from that central program. It's a, it's a different concept than just, hey, everybody go pay this wage. So um, that's what we mean by creating a program as opposed to just imposing a new mandate on employers. And, and that's the model that we've got, I guess, at least the architecture built for. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, this is actually called an insurance fund <laughs> for that reason. Um, and it's it's going to be, it's designed to be distributed and maintained by the state um, and to then distribute to individual um, folks who are looking to seek the benefit. And so the bill that did pass would establish that, that insurance fund, if you will, um, with contributions starting from both employers and employees in October of 23, and with that benefit being available by January of 25. Um, and that benefit would include up to 12 weeks of paid leave um, for medical reasons for the employee or for someone in their family. Um, but it also would include an additional 12 weeks for things like new births or adoptions, for example. Something that's really interesting here about the bill that they did pass is that uh, so small businesses are exempted for the most part. Um, employers with fewer than 15 employees will not have to contribute to that insurance fund. Um, but the employees of those small businesses, every employee in the state will still have to contribute. So that's really interesting. The fund essentially, um, all of the larger employees then are essentially subsidizing smaller employees, um, employers, I mean. I think that's important because there was a lot of talk about, well, if I don't want to do it, if I don't want to pay into this program and I don't want to take the leave, I should be able to opt out. But as you both yes. said, 
this is similar to insurance, right? Where you can't just have, you know, if, like you're talking about health insurance, you can't just have all the um, the healthy people or the or the sick people, either one of those groups being on the planet. You have to have a mix, right? Because that's what it's all about. And it's the same thing here, right? You can't have people opting out because then the whole thing falls apart. You have to have enough people to, to keep this program stable, paying into it. And then most employers are going to pay into it. But that that was part of the debate is, well, why does everybody have to do this? You don't have an option. And it's because if you don't have everyone participate, the program sort of falls apart, right? Exactly. And and also to that note, you know, it's just like health insurance in the sense that you never know when you're going to need to take that benefit. Um, so the idea is that up front, everyone contributes and then it's available if you need to take it in the future. Um, okay. Something that's really interesting, though, about that here and about the the um, contributions of both the employers and the employees in particular is that this bill that was passed um, leaves those exact details up to a study to be completed by the Department of Legislative Services on exactly what that contribution rate, um, what that split should be. So we don't really know um, what it's going to look like, how much uh, employers will pay compared to employees. Um, that is to be determined. And I, I'm saying that with emphasis on the fact that that the contributions are set to start um, next October. So not much turnaround there. Um, so to be to be determined what that will look like. But for, you know, local government world, um, we definitely know that there will be some sort of uh, contributions that we have to to adhere to, as well as obviously honoring the eligible leave requests um, when that time comes. And that's that's going to be particularly interesting, I think, for some of our more special categories of employees, if you will, such as public safety staff, folks that, you know, we want on um, on call all the time. And so kind of navigating as as the managers and the hiring um, bodies, how do we make sure that we're both able to uh, properly give that leave that is that is um, eligible and, and needed, but also uh, making sure that we fill all of our services as required in our duties as local governments. So a lot of details still to come here, but um, the, you know, the short story is that we have a program to be established and supposedly by January of, of 2025, we'll, we'll start to have paid leave available in the state. Yeah, fascinating debate, fascinating process for all this all came together. Uh, certainly a flurry of activity at the end of session to get all this wrapped up in time for the General Assembly to override a veto from the governor, which they did. So more to come there, obviously, Brianna, we're going to post links in the show notes. You have a really good recap of the bill on the Conduit Street blog, so we'll make sure to include that. I want to jump to our next topic of discussion, always, always a hot topic, school construction. And Brianna, there was a lot of emphasis this session on school construction. We know um, the past few sessions and maybe a few years ago, we had the big, big, big bill to, to pump tons of money into school constructions to get all these projects going that were sort of sitting there ready to go. What did we get into this past session when it comes to school construction? Because again, that is something that always gets the attention of county governments. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that school construction, as I'm as I'm learning more on um, the general topic, I, I think that it's always going to be a very hot one that we will never um, not have interest in for for legislative session purposes. Um, but this year in particular was really interesting, and of course, um, funding of school construction outside of the actual mechanics of what kind of construction build we're doing um, were definitely hot topics this year. We saw several bills that would have, um, for example, required 
locals to fully fund some major remediation and like testing of school facilities for various issues like mold and other things like that. Um, those were, were challenges uh, and there were others to like eliminate any sort of state funding support for traditional energy systems, for example, which um, is not quite realistic for county needs um, or abilities at this time, but those those sort of bills did not pass. Um, there was nothing major this year that would be detrimental to local government's ability to uh, provide safe and, and healthy um, school facilities for our students. So that's, that's great news. That was in large part thanks to MAKO's advocacy and really um, educating legislators on these issues and things like that. Um, what did pass, however, was a major bill stemming from the interim work group on school construction, which um, we've talked about before on the podcast. Uh, MAKO had a seat on that board um, by a Frederick County Executive, Jan Gardner. Um, that was an interim work group that did a lot of really uh, hard looking, at, took a lot of hard looks at um, how we do school construction as a state, how we want to use things like facility assessments to inform um, where we are with uh, school maintenance, building maintenance and things like that and where we wanna go. And so that was really a landmark bill this session um, in my opinion. And it really does a lot of good for counties in particular as really the funders and um, the project managers of school construction and maintenance. Um, lots in that bill, it was um, quite a hefty one, but it all, it all stemmed from really healthy debate and, and discussion during the interim by that work group. Um, something right. super, yeah, Michael? No, I just, I think I, think, uh, I want to expand on that for a second and, and mm -hmm. say, Brianna, your, your write-ups that have been on the, on the blog talking about uh, this bill, I think would be good reading for people who are interested in the deeper details. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we don't want to do 30 minutes on go through point by point of what's in the bill. But I, I would say that school construction is just one of these areas because the state has a coordinating and funding role, we end up with a lot of state level policy to mm -hmm. provide incentives for this or bonuses for that, or to say, you know, these kind of projects will get special consideration and so forth. So that's part of the push and pull in the structure that we have in Maryland, where the state has a big active funding role for school projects. That's different than in some other states. There are other places where basically you know, each school district is on its own to build a new school when they need one or to patch over their roof. I think Maryland, for the most part, is doing this wisely. And what you end up with is an opportunity for some smarter policies on that front. So if we want to move in the direction of energy efficient school building, something we mentioned last week when we were talking about the climate legislation, we've already got the infrastructure and the architecture for that. We've got, you know, carrots and sticks in place to, to have buildings meet certain standards and so forth. And this bill went even farther in that particular area. But that's, I mean, that's a part of the Maryland policy debate, not just how are we, where are we spending dollars, but also what are the things that the state's going to recognize? And they have an opportunity to say, hey, your, your state county split can be more favorable if you do these various things. That gives the state a lot of policy leverage on what our school buildings end up looking like. Yeah, that's exactly what, what this bill did, um, for sure. 
And so there are things built into this bill, like those incentives, those carrots for doing things like environmentally friendly builds or, um, you know, reconstructing your, your HVAC system to be more environmentally friendly, things like that. Um, but there's also a whole other set of incentives built into the bill for things that are um, what I'll call more complicating factors, like concentrations of poverty, for example, um, or concentrations of English language learners, things like that, um, where if we have a school that is either, you know, a new build or needing a major renovation and happens to fall into those categories, your, your state local bump um, goes up for those sort of incentives, which is really helpful, obviously. Um, the bill also set some guardrails around assessing school facilities and working in particular with the local school systems to better do so. We saw kind of a rocky start to the beginning of the, of the work group simply because there was um, some issues with school facility assessments uh, and kind of the process really getting that off the ground and, and how the state was working with uh, locals in in collecting that data and things like that. So this bill tries to set some guardrails around not only how the state should be working with the locals to do that in the future, but also then what that data can be used um, to do. So prioritizing uh, projects, for example, based on um, you know the 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 lifeline of of a school facility or based on the quality of certain systems, things like that. Um, and something that I'm particularly excited for with this bill, something that we've been talking about for a bit um, as a real help to, to local government is the establishment of a local revolving loan fund um, and program that would essentially allow our, our lower debt capacity counties to, to forward fund both the local share, but also the state share of school construction. So that means we'll have, um, counties able to move forward with projects much sooner than than anticipated because of this revolving loan fund. And to that note, you know, there was a, a pretty hefty state appropriation uh, dedicated to this fund. It's I, the number is is um, escaping me at the moment, but I, I know that it was between 40 and 50 million just for the first year. Um, so some real potential for leverage there. And I think yeah. that that'll be really useful for a lot of folks. A big deal and a lot of work went into this and you mentioned county executive gardner she has been the expert the expert on this issue representing county governments mm -hmm. for many years so really good news on that front brianna this is something that is going to be a recurring issue as everybody wants to build more schools modernize schools make them more energy efficient etc we're on board for all of that we just need to make sure that we have the right tools and the right support from the state to make that happen. Along those lines, sticking with education, I wanna also talk about, because we are the Condo Street Podcast and we talk about the blueprint in Kerwin early <laughs> and often, the Accountability Implementation Board, the AIB, this is uh, building off of the blueprint for Maryland's future. This is how we're going to implement the bill, make sure that everything goes as planned. And so we have this board and Michael and Brianna, I think you were both involved in AIB and maintenance of effort stuff. That is the amount of money that counties have to put in to their local school systems for operating costs. So Michael and Brianna, let's talk about the AIB and maintenance of effort. I think we can kind of take these two as one subject here as we move along on the podcast. But what, what was going on with the AIB? I know we talked about that previously, Michael, during session and maintenance of effort. Yeah, I, I can kick off a little bit on the accountability board. If you, if you remember back to the, the fall, 
of, of last year, I think we talked on the podcast and there was conversation in the headlines about the, the creation and composition of this oversight board. So it's a statewide panel that is supposed to sort of shepherd things along through this 10-year implementation of the whole Kerwin blueprint plan. And um, for those of us who were in on the ground floor with the commission and all the work that went into ultimately the creation of that plan, a big part of the, the thinking behind this initiative was Maryland needs to make sure that the new resources and the new expectations are coming along properly, that we don't end up at the end of 10 years and find out, well, we missed the mark and we should have seen it coming. So the idea of having some oversight was a, a fairly central principle for a lot of people's, like as a condition of their support for this big initiative is, I'm willing to put money into it, but I want to make sure that we're seeing the things that we're supposed to see, that we're getting those teachers into that career ladder and advancing in the ways that we want, that the expanded services for our students with special needs are being reached and that we're meeting our targets there and all those different things that are that were part of the vision for what do you get out of the blueprint. Let's make sure it's happening in the right way and we'll need a team of people to oversee that, including a staff and including some sort of audit capacity and reporting capacity and so forth. So that's what this was all about. This isn't a body that's rewriting the laws or redoing the formulas on who gets what dollars or anything. It's just a matter of how is it going on the ground and is the implementation matching up with the expectations of the policy? Well, there was a there were hiccups in the process of getting to appointing that body and when applications were received for who wanted to serve, there wasn't the geographic diversity that you might have expected. You might have thought there'd be people from every corner of the state saying, I want to be part of this body. Instead, we had pockets of people from certain parts of the state, but not others. And the selection process with the group of people they had to work with ended up saying, here's our, here's our list of candidates. I'm, I'm trying to remember how this worked, Brianna. You might remember the details, but I think the bill had a nominating committee recommend something like nine or 10 people. And then the governor had to select a, a subset of that list, something like seven out of nine. Is that, do you remember the specifics? Yeah. yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, so but, but it was so, a short so list was, to choose from, mm-hmm. right? And and so you know the governor was handed a list of, I think by most people's judgment, you know, a, a qualified and and respectable group of people. But the pins on the map were kind of consolidated. It's like, oh, a lot in Baltimore and a few from Montgomery, and that's most of it. So. Um, there were, there were folks from the, the more rural parts of the state and from Prince George's County and from other parts of the state saying it doesn't look like our area is represented, at least as far as the membership of this body goes, is that right? So we, we, we knew that there would be some debate about what would happen there. And then in addition to the geographic representation, just the process, because the, the Kerwin bill was originally vetoed and overridden and that took an extra year, just the process of getting the members appointed and in place and getting them staffed up, it all happened later than expected. So we needed legislation in the 22 session 
to tidy up the, the sort of timetables and expectations for what this accountability board was going to do when they were going to report various things and so forth. So we knew coming into this legislative session that this was going to be something legislature is going to have to refine some timetables and make some changes and at least consider the membership of that body and so forth. So all this stuff was teed up for some legislative conversation. That's fair. Yeah, it, it was. And there, there was some healthy conversation for sure. Um, unfortunately, we didn't see that particular bill this year move um, to expand the, the makeup of the AIB. However, I'll, I'll note that there have been um, a lot of really robust discussions on the AIB itself with the current members um, on the need to have more uh, representation and, and to better represent all um, of Maryland's diverse needs in this, in this huge undertaking. Um, and right. so there, there's been talk, for example, about possibly assigning um, not consultants, but uh, folks to really help guide the body that aren't members themselves, but um, experts from different regions and on different topics that can help guide their thinking um, and and really make sure that all of Maryland's needs are met um, representatively. But, yeah. but we didn't actually see the legislation go anywhere. And I think that that could possibly be um, simply not wanting to put into into law these stipulations of um, the exact makeup of each you know, each member um, and where they should come from. Um, maybe that was a little bit too, uh, yeah. too prescriptive. <laughs> yeah, I th- everyone's appetite. yeah, I think that's probably the right read that, that I think there's sympathy for the idea of getting all regions and perspectives around the table, but maybe there's a solution that's short of a statutory change that rather than saying this body must have the following 13 people exactly. instead yeah, they, they, they might be able to accomplish the same ends by different means. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the body move in, in that direction with some with some widespread support. But so, so, Kevin, you were right to tee this up and say that other school funding issues got connected to this. And in the midst of the bill that we knew needed to pass that changed timetables and expectations for the accountability process, we also ended up seeing some clarifications for county funding requirements. We, we tend to refer to the maintenance of effort, the state law that says the counties can need to continue funding per pupil as much as you did the prior year. You can't backtrack on school funding. And um, I'm doing a lot of work with that short description for what is a big, complicated, and, and thorny issue that's uh, technical. I love technical stuff, but we'll we'll hold off on that for the moment. Yeah, but, that uh, was a generous description, Michael. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, so, so the, the quirky issue this year was um, the student count in the fall of 2021 still showed lots of school systems down two, three, four, five percent in their student count compared to a couple of years ago. So under the law, you fund per pupil. And if you have five percent fewer students, that theoretically puts on the table that the county could say, well, we're going to cut funding by five percent, but we'll be maintaining our per pupil funding. Um, if those kids are gone forever and they're just not going to be part of the school system, that might be the appropriate thing to do. But if if you think that that school count is kind of blurry 
because of lingering pandemic effects, and I think that's a reasonable point of view, then you probably don't want to see school systems get cut proportionally by that student count because you're not going to lay off 5% of your teachers and get rid of a bunch of school buses and shut down one out of every 20 school buildings. You're not doing that. So if we're in a blip, then it makes sense to have the school funding laws avoid, uh, you know, avoid a permanent consequence from that blip. Um, what they ended up passing got a little technical and a little complicated, which again, I love technical and complicated, but I'll abbreviate the whole thing a fair amount and just say they came up with a pretty elegant solution to more or less say, if, if you would have been able to cut funding this year because your population's down, we're going to kind of hold our nose, sort of ignore this year's student count for that purpose, just flat fund the schools at a minimum. And if that means that we've artificially bumped up your dollars per student, like same total dollars divided by fewer students is as if you gave a big bump, we'll exclude that from next year's calculation. So we'll make a one-year fix to recognize that there's probably a one-year blip in the enrollment counts. I think that's more or less the right way to tie up the loose ends on what we hope is the tail end of these you know, quirky consequences of the health pandemic that has other consequences like school attendance. And Michael, that might sound familiar, that one-year fix, because that's something we've had to do uh, last year as well, right? We, we knew that we were missing kids. We don't know if they were homeschooled, if they went to private schools, but I think everybody expects that eventually these kids are going to come back to school. And I think you gave a great description and what they did seemingly makes sense, right? You don't want to cut schools uh, because they've lost enrollment. Those kids we think are going to come back, but this is something that we've had to go and adjust for the past few years, right? That's exactly right. So this is two years running. We've had to sort of tie up the formulas and make them work smarter. I mean, you write laws for ordinary circumstances. And then when you have a record scratch moment, like a pandemic, suddenly you realize we're not sure we can really put faith in the student counts, even though the law says we're supposed to. So let's patch things over. We'll kind of ignore the September 2020 student counts altogether. And that's basically what the state law now does. And for 21, for this county funding purposes, we'll just have that one-time flat funding requirement. And I don't think that's going to be a hardship for the county governments. It's not going to put anybody in a pickle in future years, but um, we're going to have the resources to at least flat fund this year. I think, I think everybody's going to be cool with it. Makes a lot of sense. And Brianna, along these same lines, as you are our education policy expert, I want to also talk about community colleges. We saw a number of bills for community colleges. We know the community colleges here in Maryland are essential for all Marylanders, especially as we hopefully get out of this pandemic, there's going to be a lot of demand for people to change careers, get more training, and what perfect place to do that, community colleges, right? So a, a number of bills. And the one thing I want to set you up with, Brianna, we know that the state has never lived up to its funding obligation under the mm -hmm. CAID formula, right? That's the, the state funding formula. County governments also uh, are big partners with community colleges. We fund a lot of money to community colleges and then student tuition. So you have this state, county, student tuition is how we fund our community colleges. The state has never been able to live up to its formula, constantly kicking the can down the road. What did we see this session? There's some movement there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad that you're bringing up community colleges, Kevin, because I truly think that this is one of uh, the most important things to happen this session for, for counties as 
as supporters of our community colleges, like you said. Um, and so for the first time ever, uh, community colleges were fully funded in the governor's proposed budget. Um, listeners may have heard that funding referenced as CABE. You just mentioned it as CABE um, or the CABE formula, if you will, um, Kevin. And so they'll be happy to hear that the formula is fully funded for the first time ever. Uh, the governor actually put it right in his proposed budget and then the legislature maintained that. Um, so this is really not only obviously good operationally, our community colleges need the money, um, but it's also just very symbolic of the state finally living up to, um, to uh, you know, really prioritizing community colleges as being high quality institutions for higher education. Um, in particular, this, this funding formula ties community college funding to a percentage of what the state provides um, our four-year institutions. And so this is really a great symbol of showing, you know, our community colleges and the students and the professionals that attend and work at them um, are just as important and just as valuable as those at our four-year institutions. And so um, that funding is in next year's budget. That's absolutely great. Um, we will have to return next year and to make sure that, you know, that funding level is maintained. Um, I think that it's pretty routine that every session we see a bill to, to make sure that it's fully funded. Um, that bill gets, you know, to various degrees through chambers and whatnot, um, but it was not passed this year by any means um, because it was included in the governor's budget. So we'll have to see what we're working with next year. It'll be a whole new administration. Um, so there's obviously going to be a political dynamic to that as well. Uh, but one way or another, we'll, we'll definitely, um, hope that that funding is maintained. And for now, uh, especially as we're, we're coming out of the pandemic and we see just how critical community colleges are, they're flexible, they are um, accessible and affordable. Um, and they'll be key, I think, to a healthy recovering economy and um, an educated population for the state. And Michael, I think this goes, this goes back to another one of our favorite rabbit holes, right? The Budget Reconciliation Financing Act, the BRFA. Oh. The, the community colleges are fully funded, but that's because the, the, the state formula statute says that they need to be. And the governor did not put in a BRFA, which is, again, how the companion bill of the budget typically that sort of makes things work. And the governor can propose cuts there to balance the budget. Mm -hmm. We didn't see a BRFA. And so, yes, community colleges are fully funded because that's what state law says, right? Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. that's, that, yeah, that's more or less how it came together. The, the story of how these things take sometimes longer than expected is like, interesting. I don't want to beat it to death, but I, I've lost track of how many years ago it was that the current version of the Cade formula, this, this program that's named after a, a longtime legislative champion, um, you know, Jack Cade was a, was a senator on the Budget and Tax Committee and was influential in a lot of ways, but really committed to, to two-year schools. And the Cade formula basically said, the right thing to do, we know, is to pin the support for our two-year schools basically use the foundation of the way we support our four-year schools and pin B to A, right? But when you do that, typically as a legislative compromise, you say, well, we have an aspirational goal and we want to get all the way to B should be 29% of A. And that that's more or less what the Cade formula said. And it was originally passed, I don't even know how many years, 10, 15 years ago, maybe with a multi-year phase in as as political processes are wont to do, we'll get there over some stretch of time. Uh, 
But as it turned out, and this is, you know, governors of both parties and fiscal circumstances all over the place, you get to a certain spot and this is the year where you're supposed to jump by a full percent or three quarters of a percent in that ratio. And it turns out part of the budget reconciliation plan for a lot of those years was we can't afford our jump this year. Let's just extend it out. Instead of doing it this year, we'll push everything back one more year. Well, when you have a sequence of incremental decisions driven by challenging budget circumstances in the moment, your six-year phase-in can turn into eight, 10, 12, 14 years or whatever. I, I, I can't cite chapter and verse as, as to when this formula was adopted, but it's been a long time. I almost time think coming. it was the late nineties, Michael. It, it, <laughs> almost, yeah. <laughs> it's so it's, that, it's been a while. <laughs> right. So that that but that's what we're talking about is this has been everybody knew the right place to be and nobody really differed with the theory behind it. It was just a matter of taking that next step in every given incident year has proven tough. And when you have a vehicle, this sort of this big, big you know, cudgel like a budget reconciliation bill that says we're going to make all 25 changes in this bill to make this year's fiscal plan pass, you kind of have to vote for the budget reconciliation bill. That's the only way the whole thing comes together. So it's not that people kept saying, you know what, we kind of on the sly hate our community colleges. No one was saying that. It was rather, well, we needed to solve a $240 million problem this year. This is the bill that does it. And Sorry, like like eleven million of that comes out of the community colleges. They won't get the bump they were anticipating. Right? We saw that lots of times over past years. This is the year we put the bow on it and finally get to the goal. And that's a good thing. Yeah, nineteen ninety six was when the Cade formula was established. So many many years now that we've been dealing with this, and of course, when state funding lags, pressure builds on counties and student tuition. No one wants that to happen. But as you said, Michael, it's hard to vote against the Burfa because that's what you need to make the budget work. So. Thankfully, we didn't see that this year. We're really excited for our community colleges, our partners. We are huge fans and advocates for our community colleges. So, so really great news there when it comes to community college funding. More work to do, as you said, Brianna, but I'm, I'm really excited about that one. And I think it's the right thing to do. It took a long time to get here, but here we are. I know that the folks at the community colleges are excited. Their association is excited. So overall, great news for them. And, and it, this is support for the institutions, but it also, we should understand that central support from the state government and from the counties is the way to make sure that the offerings at your two-year schools are affordable to a really wide range of people. I mean, that's one of the main assets of community colleges as a framework for higher education. So to the extent that the state has not been able to live up to, to its share, we've ended up with the squeeze is on tuition and, and the people who participate, you know, who, who want to take classes, who want to advance themselves in the workforce or in education. So this is an opportunity that's going to translate for the people who want to get those classes and want to move ahead. And that's a good thing, too. And that's, that's a really important uh, point, Michael. I think especially as we're putting this all in the COVID context and we are experiencing what folks are calling the great resignation and, um, you know, to have community colleges be a bridge for people to get into the healthcare field, to get into teaching where we have such a shortage of professionals um, and things like that, really making sure that we can maintain um, accessibility and affordability are key. And this is one way to do so. All right. So, Brianna, 
while we have you here, is there anything else that we didn't cover? Some of the, the major policy issues that you worked on during the 22 session? I think we hit the big ones, but any final thoughts on this session? It was a weird one, of course. We talked with our colleague Dominic last week about his feelings about how things came together, signy die, but I wanna make sure we didn't miss any of your big policy issues, and then I'll get your thoughts on session generally, especially as we wound down and uh, got to signy die. Yeah, it was a great, um, a great and strange session at the same time. Um, I look forward to hopefully next year being uh, completely back to a normal routine with um, in-person hearings and, and, and committee sessions and all of that good stuff. Um, but it was definitely, uh, I think, an interesting and a major session to uh, make my reemergence into Annapolis. And I was so happy to do it with y'all and um, for local government. Yes, and we're happy to have you. It was a great session for Mako. Michael, any final closing thoughts from you before we wrap up today? I think all these all these issues are interesting. And a couple of times today, we had to cut off a conversation that could have been its own 20 or 30 minute rabbit hole. But um, kudos to, to Brianna for riding herd over some of these tricky issues. And a couple of things that she just waved away and said, you know, there were, there was a challenging bill and it didn't pass and that's good and so forth. Um, that's a, that's a good deal of what the county governments need to do in the policy process is talk about the implementation level, talk about, um, you know, what, the, what things would be a challenge locally and that sort of thing. Um, you know, carrots and sticks and so forth have their place, but we sometimes need to step up and say, hey, this idea is more than you're bargaining for and here's why. So, that's a big part of, of the county role in the state legislative process. And I think we got a lot of that done this year. I'm happy about it. All right. So as Michael said, we had a lot of conversation that could have gone on and on. We will make sure to post links in the show notes. You can read more about all the things that we talked about today there, but we will leave it there for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then of course the Conduit Street blog. But for Brianna January and Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. 